Wild. Time for a start show. Struggle to feed audience. Your move silently and hide checks are successful. Good evening, lords and ladies. You have chosen your evening's entertainment quite wisely. You are about to experience the most wondrous spectacle in all of Western Scott Hallier. I am your host proprietor, Romande Zwarvinde, and I welcome you to the Twenty Sided Theatre. Dancing lights! When last we left my insufferable bastards, they had just traversed the astral plane to a non-place called the Citadel of the Rising Suns. The Citadel's enormous turrets connect impossibly large walls, and the whole complex has something to do with the metaphorical risings of literal suns as seen from literal planets. We had little time to investigate, though, as we had been chased, harassed, and attacked by my sister's band, a horde of demon spawn from the Hungering End, and most lately, a celestial dragon who claims to be the father of one of our eldest foes, Draeklin Denarian. Now, I'm not one to gossip, but the rumor mongers on Ditch Street in Sandaskar all claim that Denarian was conceived to be the next emperor until a group of adventurers uncovered a scandal most adult in nature. His mother, the Empress, had been displaced on her wedding night, and thus the Emperor did not realize that the woman in his marriage bed was actually a male, elder, radiant, celestial dragon in disguise. Because the resulting baby had scales and wings, the palace staff knew immediately that the infant was not the offspring of His Holiness Emperor Nashtif the 27th and Her Radiance Empress Kalshin Danspil. Even though the baby most definitely had the Emperor's mother's eyes. In any case, we met Denarian a number of years after these events, and none of my bastards ever cared one whit for the holier-than-thou half-celestial, half-dragon, half-elf. The long and short of it is that I single-handedly defeated Draeklin's true father and or mother, the dragon Aether Sidrin, thusly. I don't know how time works on the astral plane long, Father Maldreth has been chasing me with a trillion low-hanging spinning blades, each of which would have ruined my haircut. If that did not stop me, then no dragon, no matter how celestial or radiant, shall further stall the progress of the unimpedable Romande Swarfinde. The Vorpal Enchantment of the Romande Sword flares to life and a dull brown aura envelops the bar. The elf strides right up to the dragon's reclining chest and flicks his arm. Aether Sidreen looks very startled as the elf moves with much more strength and speed than he ought. And before everybody's eyes, Romande has unimpeachably, single-handedly, killed an elder radiant dragon from the plane of good. We scurried through the gates behind the dragon, locking them securely once we were through. You emerge into a round foyer of pink marble. As soon as the last of you steps more than five imperial linear decimal markators past the gate, a wall of wind springs up, howling and whooshing around the perimeter of the circular room. 
The exit at the far end of the foyer is now impassable. Give me some spot checks. The floor of this room is covered in an inch of water, which is slowly sliding across the floor, gathering itself on the raised dais in the center of the hall. Uh, water doesn't typically flow uphill. Is that something to be worried about? I'm not sure how water works on the astral plane. You should always be worried on the astral plane, Penguin. It's quite a dangerous place. But no, water doesn't typically fight the prevailing tug of gravity here. Maybe you should go stand on that mound and see if it makes you fall upward. No thanks, Thrimlock. I'm not going into the air again. Unless it's to fly up and catch a windfish or something. Is that a thing? Thrimlock, what are you doing harassing the penguin when you have a perfectly good test subject standing right behind you? What? I'm not going to send Spirit of the Swift Wind onto that mound. I already made him fly once today, and I refuse to repeat my actions until the sun goes down. I do so hope I'm there to watch when you Cretanous and sinful parishioners all die horribly. It would be even better if Father Makar sees fit to make me instrumental in the cause of your accidents. I want a flying horse no more than you do, sorcerer. I believe Master Shinudo was referring to Sir Gnome. I'm not speaking to Sir Gnome. I might yell at him, but I refuse to speak to him until he dismantles his so-called family and returns them to whatever owl's nest he found them in. Isn't that right, Sir Gnome? Yes, Master. But I love Lady Gnome and my children, especially Thrimlet. Spirit of the Swift Wind, will you please inform Sonome that I hate him, and then tell him to get onto that raised dais so we can get on with all of this? Yes, Spirit of the Swift Wind. I understand. I will get back in the Master's good graces by obeying forthwith and without delay. Sonome strides to the center of the room as quickly as he can which isn't very fast, considering the fact that he's a skeletal gnome mage who is heavily encumbered by a suit of full plate designed for a dwarven goat brain. After two interminable minutes of watching him inch closer to the dais, something interesting finally happens. Oh no! Wait! Can Sir Gnome fly on this plane too? I thought that was just limited to the penguins! For some reason. I'm not sure he's really flying Steve. That looks more like he caught himself caught in a strong current while trying to catch a salmon. Skelly don't look like he not have fun. Or maybe he haven't had lots of fun. It hard to foretell. When his mouth closed, it looked like him smiling. But when his mouth opened, it looked like him screaming. Maybe him scream for fun of ride? You stupid, Husbor! How can Skellinome smile when smile need lips for happen? Him's obviously gritting teeth, so him not bite tongue off when him fall to floor. How Skellinome bite tongue off when him has no tongue? Eh, wife? Who's smart now? Oh? Me not know. How him talk when him has no tongue, Husbor? You still stupid! You know can see that Skellinome have invisible tongue. Invisible things still there, even though you no see it. Just like moon during daytime, or Horog in deep cave when you above ground, or like wind. Sir Gnome continues tumbling through the air on ever-changing currents, which must be pretty strong if they're able to raise up that set of dwarven plate and hold it aloft for some Master, I'm trying to get to the center of the room, but I can't seem to find my feet. I'm still not talking to you, Sonome. Torea, can you do something about this? I'm not so sure this is within my set of specialities, Lord Grimlock. Spirit of the Swift Wind and I are more attuned to the administering and relieving of physical harms. My Mandos' favorite hat! 
Are all of my minions now rebelling against me? I've seen Mandos' hat, and it's not all that impressive if you ask me. Not one feather in it. But I may have a solution to this particular quandary, Catheran. But first, anyone who is able must join me in detecting magic. I see now. This is old magic. Very old magic. Older than if one were able to combine the ages of Father Maldrith and myself. And I am older than the seasons. You are correct, Mr. Shinra. This room storms with elemental energies from the plane of air. That probably accounts for the whirlwind that Sir Gnome is caught up in. Though, can you find a way to stop it? I'd like to get down, so I can fulfill the Master's command. Why would I want to stop it? Anyway, this magic is too old and too powerful for a simple dispel to be of any use. So, Gnome, you've caused my magics to be as ineffective as you are! Sorry, Master. Master Shinoa, if I'm not mistaken, you have a certain artifact that may be able to unbind the spell. My previous employer kept close tabs on you when he visited the Shrine of Gold and the Hall of God. Once again, I'll ignore the question of how you know all this about us, Tuxy, but I'll agree. You had that magic ring that unleashed some sort of delicious fish god way back in the Water Temple. It was called the Shrine of Old Fishbowl Head, not the Water Temple. None of you ever stopped to read the description of the legend. Wait, that sounds familiar. Why should I think I've heard about that? Because my esteemed cousin, Dromande, who has agreed to record all of my feats and adventures on Scry Crystal so that I have a second set of notes to compare against. Hello, Dromi. Well, he announced during the sea battle that the Faceless Pirate had been harassing us ever since the Water Temple. You were around, so that's why it should be familiar, Steve. Thanks. For the explanation, Bard. Now, would you mind finally telling me about what happened in Brexit? We'll have time for storytelling later. For the moment, we have more pressing matters. Father Maldreth, would you like to explain what's going on here, or should I? No, I would not like to explain anything to these creeps. Furthermore, Makar has declared that I am no longer allowed to directly aid any of my parishioners in their wars against their own ignorance. Very well then. We fled the fall of Brext and escaped to the Shrine of Ulm, where the power of the Mother of Weapons unraveled an ancient spell that blocked our way to the plains of the God Killers. Months later, when we visited the Halls of Guy, which had been overrun by the Fire Iron Otter Clan, the power of Mayase again dispelled another set of ancient magics, which bound the power of her great anvil to within a ten-mile radius of itself, which in turn had been rooted to the heart of the mountain. Filthy otters. They'll never encroach on the Pangonquin fishing waters ever again. Whatever happened to that anvil, anyway? With the bindings of stone undone, the great anvil was once again able to be moved. And so it now resides at my black magma forge, where I can perform lengthy, detailed, and most importantly, uninterrupted research on its properties. Mayase's Ring of Unbinding ought to do the trick here a third time. <clears throat> By the unending power of the Mother of Weapons, may this whirlwind be dispelled. The winds die down, revealing a pillar of liquid standing at the center of the dais. Sir Gnome immediately falls into the pillar. The water flows up, over, around, and through Sir Gnome, forming a sort of watery flesh surrounding his bones. The effect is rather disgusting, though, as the humanoid form taking shape is over two paces tall, but Sir Gnome stands barely one. The 
magical waters around Sir Gnome swell and then begin to pull in two directions. After a few moments of mitosis, a humanoid figure composed entirely of water splits off from the skeletal gnome and hurries down the far hallway. You watch the figure recede down the hall before turning left. As soon as the figure is out of sight, the pillar of water around Sir Gnome collapses, revealing a familiar liquid face. Yar har har! Scallywags, think you can surprise me in the secretest of places, do ye? How fortunate that when I chose left this time, I didn't even have to find the path back to you. Great. The guy who killed Kalora is back. Didn't we kill you in the arena? You know how the arena works, Issa. He probably just woke up in a cell when we popped him like a skin of wine. In any case... Father Makar has not declared that I must feign any semblance of patience for this impediment. Watery pirate many faces, the mere word of Makar shall render you stunned. No! Wait a minute! Good. Now the rest of you idiots have 12 seconds to fashion a properly dismal fate for this irritating shapeshifter. But, but, but Sir Gnome is there. Oh, who cares? Sir Gnome has gotten himself into this. And I don't care if he ever gets back out. What about the portable storage facility in Sir Gnome's skull, Lord Grimlock? I often keep bits of fruit and other horsey treats in there for Spirit of the Swift Wind. At the very least, bind the pirate's arms and legs. I would rather he be conscious but unmoving when I flens away the many layers of magic and flesh until I discover their innermost workings. I want it on the exploratory magical surgery. I want to find out why this sack of silk keeps coming back after we kill him. Steve, I think that's you and me on rope duty. We're the rogues after all. Tuxie, where did you put the rope? One step ahead of you, Issa. Just putting the finishing touches on this constrictor knot. And that should do it! And now a brief time stop! And the dais is now prepared for use as an operating table! What? Hey! Let me go, you bilge-swilling barnacle bellies! I think not, Pirate. You have eluded us for far too long. And now, the Mother of Weapons and the Warfather call you home. Father Maldrith? Would you care to make the first incision? Father Maldreth raised his wicked hooked sacrificial knife in both hands, the point hanging pendulously above the faceless pirate's throat. As he chanted a solemn intonation, a dusky red aura slowly enveloped him. May the Lord and Lady of Slaughter accept this sacrifice at my hand for the praise and glory of the name of violence for our benefit and for the benefit of all who serve on the battlefield. The knife plunged downward, easily piercing the watery flesh of the still half-formed changeling pirate. The dusky glow of Makar's unholy power spread from the dagger into the pirate's throat, and there it veined its way throughout the sacrificial body. The reddened water pulled upward along the blade, then flowed over Maldreth's gnarled knuckles and up the hilt. It pooled in the air above the sacrificial knife, drawing the very quintessence out from the pirate's innermost core. Once again, Imanon's ring of unbinding flared to life with its own purple glow, and the ancient water magics bound to the pirate's soul began to separate and then to emulsify in the air, just above the pirate's navel, which happened to coincide with the nose hole in Sir Gnome's head. Good. Now I just need to place this vial of Everglass beneath the concentrated magic, and we will let the natural forces take their effects. The faceless pirate's soul separates from the ancient water magics that gave him his long life the soul drifts upward from the reddish orb hovering above Maldred's hands, while the purplish orb of magical essence drifts downward into the vial held in Eminence. 
After about 10 minutes of this process, Malveth has consumed another soul for his unknown but probably violent purposes. Imanon has procured a vial of concentrated water magics from the Temple of Bull, and Sir Gnome has been freed from the possession of the Faceless Pirate. Hooray! I'm free and I didn't have to get hurt. Shut up, Sonome. Time works in weird ways on the astral plane, so there's still plenty of time to hurt you. Yes, So hungry! Back home when Funny Hat Orc makes sacrifice, us always have big feasts after. But whenever Ogre Priest makes sacrifice, it always strange things like Potato Kids or Watermans. Rumble no can't eat watermans! Rumble hungry! It be long time since me had food stuff! You, priest, go make feast for king! I am pointedly ignoring you while I finish the rituals necessary to bind this soul to the plane of war. Rumble does have a point. I think the last time we ate anything was way back in the dungeon of the Potato Castle. Can we break first now? Ugh, you cretins demand so much of me. Fine, we can stop for an hour so that you may all shut up and feast upon Malfra's heroic gobstopping trail rations. After what you hope is an hour, you break your camp, but you're still unable to tell whether and how much time has actually passed. You take in the room around you. The vestibule you stand in stretches into a hallway at one end, and a blank wall now stares at you from the other, leaving no hint of the gates or the dragon behind you. The hallway stretches for about 100 Imperial Linear Decimal Markators before ending in T-Junction. The halls to your left and right disappear into the blue distance. Froggle know how this go. Me king of go left. Froggle's right. You always choose left, if you have the choice. Indeed. All suitable challenges and foes are to be found towards the sinister. That is old High Dwarven for left. If you're an idiot. The party heads leftward at the junction, and you soon emerge from the hallway into a room that looks suspiciously identical to the one that you just left, with two key differences. Firstly, instead of a wall of wind and a pillar of water, this room contains three storm giants. The giants squat in a circle, hurling a massive pair of number cubes into the center. Every time the cubes stop skittering and spinning, loud groans of despair and cheers of victory ring out from the gambling giants. And what's the other key difference, oh giant voice, do tell? The second key difference is a dead body lounging near the entrance. Anybody care to take a closer look? Hmm, this rotting corpse, apparently a half-elf in her mid-twenties, must have come from the arena of all crap. Look, she even holds one of those wooden short swords that the Great Horrible One gave us when we beat him. While you quietly investigate the corpse, the giant's boisterous game of dice continues. Huh. I guess there's not a lot to do in this tower if you're not trying to get to the top of it. One of the giants raises his head, finally aware of the approaching horde of you bastards. Tell me. He grunts in an unfamiliar language, and his two companions also turn their attention away from the dice and toward you. I tire of being unable to understand the beings we come into contact with. Oh, we must rectify this state of affairs immediately. Um... Aren't you going to cast a spell of comprehension or something, Imanon? That's what you did when we faced the dragon. Oh, Chameleon, you are sorely undereducated in xenopolitics and negotiation, aren't you? Father Maldreth, what do you recommend we do with this group of beings whom we cannot and care not to understand? Simple, Master Shinoda. We put a halt to their ability to speak, that we need not be confused by their babbling barbarism. Why not? This seems to be the way we've dealt with everyone and everything ever since that potato king captured us. Oh, voice. Yes, Thor? You said that these were storm giants, yes? Indeed, I did. 
that I shouldn't hit them with lightning. I've learned to observe my foes before casting spells. That red-skinned potato dragon taught me that particular lesson. So, what pixie do instead of throw lightning bolts at giant? Throw the opposite of lightning, of course. Polar rain! The ray of arctic chill bursts forth from the outstretched palms and fluttering wings of the pixie. Striking the closest giant in the ankles, sealing his feet to the ground. Wait a minute. How the fuck is an ice spell the opposite of a lightning spell? I'm just a rogue, but I know a thing or two about a thing or two. Simple elementalism, penguin! Imminent Gavaran, would you kindly tell the penguin what lightning is made out of? Well, penguin, lightning comes from the sky, and it sets things on fire, so it is obviously a combination of wind and flame. Wind and earth are opposite forces, as are flame and water. And what do you get when you mix the properties of earth with those of water? Um, ice? Correct! Give the well-dressed penguin a fish! Okay... I kinda see what you mean, but I still think you're making this up. How could two wizards independently make up the same reasoning for ice being the opposite of lightning? It's obviously science. Magic. Magical science. Thaumatology. The systematic, meticulous study of magic. The revealing of truths that are incomprehensible to smaller minds. That's the ticket! Thaumatology! I have a degree in that, you know. I earned it during my time at Wizard College. Walk ever. I still don't believe you. Come on, Tuxy. Let's give these giants the old peck-peck so we can get on with this silly dungeon and finally go home. Right behind you, Lady Featherfly. Both penguins waddle away from the group and then launch themselves across the floor sliding on their bellies. They cross the room in a fraction of a second, then twist their bodies upward when they simultaneously reach the frozen-footed storm giant. Two peaks slam into the enemy's chest, skewering and splattering the immobilized foe. The giant hits the ground at an awkward angle, breaking both of his knees, since his feet are still affixed to the floor. This one's not getting up again. No, but that one isn't down yet. The second storm giant takes a single, massive step forward, then swings his enormous greatsword in three rapid strokes. The first strike passes harmlessly over the penguins as they duck under the nine-foot-high swing. But the giant plunges his sword downward to his left, then brings it back up and whirling downwards, right into Tisa's head. The giant then rolls the blade off to his left in another Molinet, and brings it downward toward Tuxedo Beat at a 45-degree angle. What? Caltrop's death, Aran, I will have you know that as glorious as I may be, I have no power over and no idea about what will happen in this place. Honestly, all of that ended for me once we got to the Potato City. Isn't that right, Melio? <laughs> exactly. If it weren't for you and your monkey business, we wouldn't be here fighting a group of giants. It's been so long that those idiot merchants on the town council in Oakvale have probably forgotten how to collect taxes from my farm again. Well, I didn't know it would take us this far. Honestly, I thought we'd just end up with a kingdom of exotic foodstuffs as a near-endless resource. Well, either way, we need to get back home. And these giants are in my way! And nobody stands in the way of the CEO of Bear Industries for long, especially while he can still brutal charge! The bear bounds across the room, leaping over Tuxedo Beak to land on all fours behind the closest giant. Brother Caltrops rears up on his hind legs, stretching to his full height of seven and a half ILDMs. Uh, voice, what is an ILDM? 
imperial linear decimal markers. Despite his great height, this still leaves about four ILDMs worth of Storm Giant towering above Smith, who seems not to notice or care. The half-bear monk rakes his right claw across the giant's midsection, tearing four parallel gashes through its body. He follows up the first claw with a roundhouse kick to the groin, which folds the Storm Giant in half, leaving its ears low and exposed to a boxing from a pair of massive paws. The bear finishes the combination by snapping his trap-like jaws shut around the enemy's throat. Within seconds, another giant lies twitching and bleeding out on the flagstones. That's two down. I lay claim to the third, that I might use its great bones and flesh to construct a new flesh colossus. Ew! Imanand, haven't you changed that particular invention's disgustingly adult-sounding name yet? Well, technically, it's a mechanically enhanced conglomeration of humanoids. I suppose you can use the acronym, MECH. Actually, Imanand, at Bard College. I learned that acronyms and initialisms are for the weak-winded and those who would fear ebullient verbosity. Do not rob yourself of line length, my insufferable bastards. We should all take a vow immediately to refer to these devices of Imanand Gavaran by the fullest name only. A mechanically enhanced conglomeration of humanoids designated primarily as a flesh colossus. Shut your noise, whole bard. I will call my inventions whatever I please. But for the moment, I only have one such invention with me. Go, my cadaver collector, and retrieve the icy remains of the final giant. But Imanon, that last giant is sick dead, and Thorn's polar ray didn't hit it. Is that so, Camille? must rectify the situation as to not be the disseminator of untruths. In order to remove this impediment and to preserve this specimen's more delicate parts, I shall strike it with my polar rays. Imanon stretches out his hands toward the storm giant. Blooms of purple energy swirl from the mummified necromancer's hands before a pale blue ray bursts forth from each of his palms. The lines of thermologically channeled energy flash across the room and strike the giant squarely in the chest. Rapidly growing crystals of ice form on the giant's torso as its movement slows to a crawl. Meanwhile, the cadaver collector comes to a halt before the enemy, before enveloping the giant in an enormous bear hug lifting it more than a pace from the ground. A sickening crack rings forth as the giant's spine breaks. The collector then fulfills its primary function and collects its glory, lifting the limp giant over its head in order to slam it down onto the jutting gravestones and sharp rocks, studying the constructs back. Brothel still want fight! Brothel was looking forward for fight! Well, Brothel, you had the same choice as before now. You can only go down the hall in front of you, and after about 100 ILTMs, it splits into T-Junction. You can go left, or you can go right. We go left. You always smartest when you go left, sweet axe. As much as I'd rather disagree with the orcs, let's go left. Wait a minute. That gladiator reminds me of something. Can't quite put my finger on it, though. Something about that wooden Rudeus. Perhaps the inscription? I believe it conferred upon us the right to leave. Exactly. And the last thing the Great Horrible One told us was that if we fail the final trial, then we wake up in his cramped, God's-forsaken cells forever. I think the inscription was a hint. Indeed it was. And I'm honestly quite surprised that you figured that one out all on your own. Who is that? The bane of my existence. Oh, he's the big voice that took over when you went to wherever you went. He is my esteemed and very many times distant cousin, the impresario of the great arena of Akrap, Dromonde Zorafane. Katharadan, this is the giant voice that follows us around most of the time. Dromonde Zorafane at your service. Pleased to make your acquaintance. Now, the youngest voice will you be able to wake up in the cell some time? Not him, Katharadan. We need this one. 
You can have anybody else we come across, as per our agreement. Right, right. Well, anyway, you idiots all learn how to read. Well, except for Robert, I guess. Now, see if you can figure out the clue. If you can't, then don't worry about coming to look for me. The arena of our crap will come to you first. Okay. Not really sure what's just happened there. Um, so which way do you guys go? I believe we must correct our proclivity for Sinister Drift. Could you say that again in plain common? What the bard means to say is that we go right. We turned right, and after a very short time, we found ourselves in total darkness. We turned about, drinking in the emptiness with our light-starved eyes. Me not know what you talking about. It's fine for seeing here. Yeah, this just like growing up in Cave. Cave was Orc City where we grew up. Yes, Vroggle, I'm sure that hearing about your time growing up in the Cave will be as interesting as Issa telling us about her first fishing trip with her mother, or Romande regaling us with stories about tunic shopping. But Vroggle's right. Lorimar is an undead, stitched raven, so he and I have no problem seeing in the dark. Huh? That's right, boss. Makes it easier to find that sweet, sweet nighttime carrion. Same goes for Torea and Sonom, since they're undead too. Indeed, Lord Thrimlock. And Spirit of the Swift Wind is a celestial horse, so he has the blessing of infravision. I'm a lich. And I'm a mummify. Fine. Not all of us had eyes that were starved for light, but Thorn, Steve, Issa, Tuxedo Beak, Brother Caltrops, and I all benefited greatly when I lightly tickled my loot strings and brought forth an orb of incandescence. You no longer seem to be in a brick-and-mortar tower complex. Instead, you stand in what appears to be a natural, unhewn cave. The walls, floor, and ceiling all glisten damply while the drip-drip of slowly growing stalagmites echoes throughout the chamber. You look about for the source of the dripping, and you see a stalagmite throne with a pool of water slowly growing in the seat. Another dead gladiator lounges at the foot of the throne. Nearby lays an empty forge atop a pile of debris. You see no exits to the cave. A forge. Ah, if only I had some coal. Then I can try out some of my new designs I've been sketching. Well, some coal, some steel, and a number of assorted fleshy parts, that is. Well, there's a pickaxe over in this pile of crap. And if bears know caves like I think they do, then there's a vein of coal in this wall over here. If that drow game show host is still following us, then this must be another one of those asinine trials. Master Shinuda, I suggest you write the forge and get it primed while Brother Caltrops produces us some coal. Shut up, Maldreth. I was just reaching that conclusion myself. It's too bad we don't have any dwarves who follow our party around. I bet they'd already have mined out this whole cavern. It's a good thing we don't have any filthy dwarves following us around. I bet they'd make everything we own smell like goat urine. This is the truth, Kato. I know. That's why I said it. Dwarves are smelly. Except that one dwarf we met that one time, whose name I can never bring myself to remember. But he is the exception that proves the rule. I'm done knocking chunks of coal out of this wall. If you elves are done badmouthing our theoretical dwarven slaves. And I have the forge ready. My cadaver collector will tirelessly work the bellows for me. Within a quarter hour, Imanant has stoked the coals to a red hot glow. You wait for another half hour before anybody speaks. Somewhere in that time, Sir Gnome finally finds his head and puts it on backwards. This boring! Vroggle wants something happen soon! Vroggle still want fight! Yeah, something's definitely wrong. Because we're still not getting out of here, and I really don't want to wake up in a 
settle again, like this poor bastard at the foot of the throne. Maybe Imanon built the fire wrong? And maybe you should shut up, Penguin. I will handle everything fire and forge related, whether it please you or not. If we ever need advice on fishing or frost, then I promise we will defer to your expertise. And maybe you should apologize for being a jerk. I was trying to be helpful. Hmm, Steve may have a point. Maybe we didn't finish the whole puzzle yet, and that's why we're not getting out of here. Perhaps the water in that stalactite has something to do with it. Stalagmite. Those grow from the floor. Stalactites grow from the ceiling. And when they grow into each other, it's called a column. How does that happen, anyway? Water dripping from the surface slowly deposits minerals over a course of millennia. This slowly builds up stalactites from the top and stalagmites from the bottom. Eventually, the two meet and the mineral deposits seal the gap. Well, we mined some coal and turned it into fire. Maybe we should use the water to put it out. See, Steve? You're learning basic elemental thaumatology already. If what you're doing doesn't work, then add another element. So no, get over here. I have a quest for you. Yeah. Take this old, crappy carpenter's cup that I'm pulling from the dimensional portal in your head, fill it with water, and dump the water on those coals over there. When you're done, take your head off and punt it somewhere into the cave. When you put yourself fully back together, then your quest is complete, and I promise to find something new to be mad at you for. Yes, Master. Right away, Coals hissed their deaths, smoke filled the room, and darkness settled once more over our cavernous prison. We stood in silent expectation for a long minute in the unchanging black. For that entire stretch of time, the only sounds we could make out were Sir Gnome's head clattering around in the cave, and his body bumbling amongst the many tripping hazards as it sought its final peace. Then, suddenly, Three swirling lights appeared, pinpricks at first, but they quickly grew, seeming at once to displace reality and gather it inward. After a blinding ignition of critical mass, three grand elementals stood before us. These emissaries from the planes of air, water, and stone stood resplendent, each gently shedding an off-white light. As emissary of the domains of the youngest of the three fundamental fabrics, I am duty-bound to address you first. Hmm. Secondary tier thaumaturgical philosophy states, Earth, water, and air are the three elements that combine and recombine to make up the universe. The primordial mind fire cools to air. Air condenses to water. Water loses more of the initial heat and becomes stone. Thus, stone must be the youngest of these three emissaries. Indeed, Imperial Mageling. Many unnumbered years ago, we of the Earth and Realms convinced our elders to strike a pact with the native peoples of your world. Nor wind, nor water, nor stone shall raise hand in aid or submission to partake in the labors of the Forge Mother. And to bind this pact, the sons and daughters and other children of Volandros, his tribe and his holdings and all peoples therein, shall join in to offer weekends in the amending hunt to scourge all realities of the Fabric Eaters known to the people of Daskar as the Hungering End. The cave lurches and trembles all around, making reflex saves or fall prone. A crack opens up in the wall behind the emissaries. The fissure runs deep into the lightless earth. The last of the pact is undone. This means you have slain the ancient predators of our peoples. You have our thanks. Stone withdraws its power and shall go about whatever business it pleases. 
Then, the liquid form of the Water Emissary spoke forth. At the time of the Pact, the Aqueous held their reservations. Without water's presence, sometimes only the lightest caress. Without water, life cannot take root. We were divided, but our need overshadowed our fear of removing the touch of life from a goddess. The earth trembles again, and a flood of water comes gushing forth from the fissure in the cave. Make swim checks to grab onto something solid, or be smashed into the far wall of the cavern. And then probably ground. You all grab onto stalactites, stalagmites, or columns as appropriate and handy. After a few minutes, the flood dies down, and you can see it draining through a new fissure in the floor behind you. Because of our divided minds, our binding was weak. The Twadwa Idens also failed in their vigilance, and our binding was subsumed by a would-be fish god. You descended into the Shattered Temple, and you freed us from the Pisking Demigod's thrall. In thanks, we return the waters to this place. We, of the Aqueous Nations, would see you live. We waited silently. I assure you, none of us fidgeted from boredom, and nobody tried to sneak a peek at the scroll of titillation hidden in his exquisitely embroidered coat. We waited as the Emissary of Air reached forth with a cloudy finger, lofting up the ash from the forge. A mighty wind struck up throughout the cavern, slamming through my bastards like a bowling stone through pins. Make saves against the hurricane, or have your brains splattered against the floor wall. As the howling tempest subsided, our eyes took in the emissary of winds. She had taken all of the ash and dust of the cavern into her swirling, phantasmal form. She lithely strode to the end of the cavern and lay a single graceful finger upon the wall, tracing out a doorway with the soot and grit floating throughout her body. The part of reigning and heroes among the Icarians in days long, long past, before the sons and daughters of other children of Aladros established their city. Before Brexit and Littlesbury Ramparts, before the first reformation of the Cosmos, they preached the peace and equity of absolute disposal. The Antichrites, as they came to be called, ravaged all cosmos, destroyed innumerable planets, species, and cultures. If any of our terrible cousins or their wretched serpents persisted, you must destroy them. The countless wings shall be ever at your back. Now, the gates of dawn await. A crack peels out as the wall before her splits open. From the emissary's gate spills forth the warm, rosy light of dawn. This is the 20th. Sided Theater online at 20sidedtheater.com and follow us through scryomagical links that Master Shenuda and Primlock have established. You can follow Romande at Illustrious Row, Master Shenuda at Shenuda Necro Co, Primlock at Thrimlock, and East of Featherfoot at Lady Featherfoot. 20-Sided Theater and joint production of Bear Industry and Shenuda Necromancy Corporation. This episode starred Gabriel Abenante, Natalie Abenante, Blake Parker, Caridwen Quatrin, Kian Quatrin, and Rory Quatrin. With special thanks to Jonathan Abenante, Sierra Ciramelli Lowe, and Michael Solso for use of them player character. Written by Rory Quatrin and edited by Blake Parker. Music by Bob Spons, Duo Saxon BZL, Cubby and Jonas Dan, Miguel Angel Albunze, Multiatic, Patashu, Roboctopus, Sean Bailey, and BCMG. 
For a complete list of and links to all the music you heard on tonight's episode, visit the show notes on 20sidedtheater.com. Subscribe to and rate the 20 Sided Theater on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Tell your friends about the 20 Sided Theater, or we'll send Romande to bore you to death with a grand tale of his visit to his third favorite haberdashery in Sandaskar. Join us next time at the 20 Sided Theater. Katharan, are you there? I'm tapping into the elven thoughtscape again. Indeed I am, Katharan. That must mean that this is another exciting instance of Thrym and Rose Elven Corner. What's the topic of discussion today, Katharan? Well, Katharan, today we'll be talking about livening up your life through music. Indeed we will be, Katharan. And to aid in this edification, we have conscripted the help of the most famous sitarist in all of the Empire, Zolov the Mesmerist. Thanks. It's good to be here. So, Zolov, this is Elven Corner. What makes you think we shouldn't kick you off our talk show right now? Well, you see my points to the ears. You know that the only species that's this tall's with the points to the ears and isn't greens is the elves. And I has points to the ears, and I'm taller than the Romans days. So I must have been the elves before becoming the vampires. That sounds like a very Romandian response. Katharan, why don't you take point on this interview while I consult some tomes? Glad to, Katharan. Now, Zolov, do you have any advice for aspiring citrists? Of course I do. You can't find a teacher's so good, and there's not all that much written music. So the best advice is just to play until people's comes and they listen to it. Quite unlike the lute, I'd expect. I mean... I taught myself to play the lute, but there were books of tablature for me to study from. Now, Zolov Katharan, my next question. How long does it take to string and tune the stellar sitar of Sitalian Ma? Well, it takes for ever's. People think, oh, you just place the four strings on the tops, it's so easy, but no, it's not. Many layers of strings and you place the walls, it's very difficult. And every string needs to be tuned just a half steps off from the next. That's why you don't have to retune it every time you play the song in new keys. Katharan, I've made a very important discovery! Get this charlatan out of here and off of our elves-only talk show! What? What's you found out, Thrimslock? According to the textbooks I acquired at Wizard College, the vampirization process actually elongates the ears of any species into pointy, elven-style cartilage. That explains why he's more than half a head taller than both of us. This imposter used to be a human! Zolov, is this true? If so, then we must immediately boot you from the show and start over with a new musical guest. Well, you found me out. Yep, I used to be a humans. I'll just take my Stelzer sitars of Sitalzi and Mars back to band's practice. You know, for the Red's hands. The band's just so big that the Roman's days always gets asked to open for us, but never opens the other ways around. Hey, that's right! You're constantly getting asked to open for the biggest stage act in the Empire, aren't you, Katharan? You know, since they have a much larger audience than you do. I hate you both. Get this vampire off of my talk show! Another episode fully ruined and unlistenable! Stay tuned for Chip Dipson's Action Town Criers, with the news of the day that your overlords have determined you should care about.